Some of you will be old enough to remember the original show called Candid Camera by Alan Funt. That started in 1948, believe it or not, and it started the year before as a radio show, Candid Microphone. But in 1962, there was an episode of Candid Camera called Face the Rear. I don't know if you, you may have seen this. It's one of the more popular ones, but if you know the premise of Candid Camera, it's setting people up with a gag. So the producers and the actors are all in on it, but there is some sort of a gag that they film people being caught up into. And this particular one, called Face the Rear, was in an elevator. And they would let somebody walk into the elevator, and then what do you do when you walk into the elevator? You turn around, right, and face the doors. Well, before the elevator doors shut, which were controlled by the producers, there would be three or four other people from the the television show, actors, they would go in and they faced the back of the elevator with the one person who was in there not in on the gag facing the front of the elevator. And the gag was to see would they turn around and follow the crowd. And without exception, people would look around and follow the crowd. Now, some people were very sly about it. They'd be facing the front, everybody else would be facing the back, And one guy just kind of went to look at his watch and move this way. The elevator door shuts, opens again, and he's facing this way with everybody else to the back of the elevator. Somebody else gets in and automatically changes. And so they had one other level of the gag where the one person of the team would give a sign and they took their hat off. This was 1962. Guys still wore hats. I wish that still happened. But they took their hat off and this guy immediately took his hat off. And then 30 seconds later, somebody put their hat back on and immediately put it back on. And this is the same guy that not only did, did he face the same direction, but the, the people in on the gag went this way very quickly. First, they're facing the back. He faces the back. Then they face this way. He faced this way. Then they face this way. He faced this way. Then they face this way. And he faced that way. He followed the crowd completely in what he did. No words were spoken and yet direction was taken. No words were spoken, and yet influence was had. Imagine when you add words to that kind of peer pressure. Maybe you felt that kind of peer pressure before. Maybe you felt that pressure to do what everybody else is doing, whether it's only in act and deed, or whether it's in word as well. Maybe you have that part of you that rises up in you when you hear the phrase, I double dog dare you. That will ring a bell of a very bad, good movie for some of you. A movie that's not made very well, A Christmas Story, but that somehow we watch every year and enjoy it. The double dog dare, you cannot turn it around. Well, my wife doesn't enjoy it. I see her shaking her head, no. But the rest of us know a good, bad movie when we see one. Double dog dare you. You know the scene where he licks, puts his tongue against a frozen pole. Now, that's stupidity, and he knew it the whole time, but the dare was a double dog. We listen, don't we? We listen to the words around us. And there is a cacophony of words that are just not trying to get us to listen, but they want us to obey. They want us to acquiesce. They want allegiance to their words. How do we keep things straight in a world like this? In a world with podcasts and cancel culture and the way the news works today 
And just by voicing an opinion, in fact, you don't even have to voice it. You just have to look like you're about to voice it and your whole career could be tanked. How do we navigate a world where so many voices are speaking and yet we have to walk in the midst of that? Well, Isaiah has a simple word for us. The Lord God and his servant through Isaiah has this word, listen to me. And it's that simple. God says, listen to me. Now, it doesn't mean we're not going to hear all those other words, right? We will have to engage them at times. We will have to figure out how we're going to act in light of them. But if where is our antenna focused? Are we just cast about by every wind of doctrine? Everything we hear, we think, oh, maybe we should do that. We give too much credence to everyone just because they have an opinion. Well, it must be valid. How do we navigate? We listen to our God. I want you to turn with me to Isaiah in chapter 51, and I want to show you this section. When we come to sections of scripture, we want to be able to look at it and read it and read it and reread it and reread it and see what the text tells us about how it's structured. And I want you, I hope you've done this already. If you have, you'll just nod your head at how valuable this is to do. If you haven't, look at what the text tells us. And I'll come back to tie up our challenges here in just a minute as we come to it. But verse, chapter 51, verse one, all the way over to chapter 52, verse 12 is one large section of scripture. And we know that because when you read it, it hangs together. The author has made such wonderful and beautiful grammatical ties to show us how it hangs together. This section is also what ties the second or the third servant song with the fourth servant song. And it does it in such a way that overwhelms us. So if you start right in chapter 52 or 51 verse 1, what do you see? Listen to me. Okay, now anytime God says to listen to him, then we have to figure out who's speaking. We'll do that in a minute. But I'm telling you, this is Yahweh and probably his servant as well speaking, listen to me. Look at verse three. You see two words that jump off the page for you in verse three, comforts and comforts. That should bring our mind all the way back to chapter 40, right? Comfort, comfort my people. That's the way this whole section started. So those words in context of Isaiah should jump off the page. We should circle them. We should say we think those have meaning because they appear, this idea of comfort appears all the way through verses or chapters 40 to 55. Look at verse four. Give attention to me and give ear to me. Another way of saying what? Listen. Listen. Another way. So the second section is marked out the same way. Now I want you to look at the end of verse six. Verse six gives, the, it gives a, an account of God and his creative work, and then it says, but my salvation will be forever and my righteousness will never be dismayed. And in the very next verse, we see, fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings. You see how he hangs those together? But then look at the end of this, this look at verse seven. Listen to me, the same word. Listen to me. So we have listen to me in verse one. Give attention and give ear to me, verse four. Listen to me, verse seven. And look at how verse eight ends. But my righteousness will be forever and my salvation to all generations. Do you think righteousness and salvation are important in these oracles? And do you think they're important enough for God to say three times, listen to me? You see how we start? The the text is giving us this. It's telling us what it's about. Then look at verse nine. Awake, awake. 
So now we don't have listen, but we have awake. And when we get there, we'll see that this isn't God speaking. This is Isaiah speaking on behalf of the people or maybe the people themselves giving voice to ask God to awake. And we'll see why that is. I also want you to see in the next two lines, arm, or the next line says arm. We've already seen that three times in this passage. The word arm is going to be very important for us. It's repeated and it ties us into chapter 53 where the servant is the arm of the Lord. Then in verse 12, we have the word comforts again. We have this interlude that's in the middle. We have an awake in chapter 51, verse 9, then an interlude starting in verse 12, and then look at verse 17. Wake yourself, wake yourself. So we've got these ideas of waking and wake yourself. First, the people say to God, wake yourself, and then God says to the people, no, you wake yourself. Comfort again in verse 19. Then in chapter 52, a third call. We have three calls to listen and three calls for awaking. Chapter 52, verse one, awake, awake. And then we continue on comforting, appearing again in verse nine. And then finally in verse 11, depart, depart. You see how this all hangs together grammatically? We read that and we circle those words and we say, this is one section. And it's about God's righteousness revealed in salvation, bringing comfort to his people. And he wants his people to listen. We get that just by reading the text. We don't need commentaries. We don't need anybody else except the Holy Spirit leading us to see this. And then look at chapter 53, verse 1. The servant song actually starts in verse 13 of 52, but look at how it's tied together. Who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom as has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? The arm of Yahweh is his power and it's revealed in his servant in this section. And we are meeting this servant through these four servant songs. I just wanted to show you and demonstrate what you and the Spirit with your Bible are capable of just by reading the text. So many times we come to the text and we, the first thing we do is we grab a commentary or we search for something online or we read the notes in our study Bible. And there's nothing wrong with doing those, but isn't it better just to read it yourself and see what God says to you through his word? It's so beautiful to do. Stand with me. I know you've been standing a lot, but we stand when we read the word. Our sermon text this morning will be for the first 16 verses. And I want you to hear them all together. 51.1. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. For Yahweh comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her deserts like the garden of Yahweh. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the voice of song. Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to to me, my nation. For a law or a teaching will go out from me, and I will set my justice for a light to the people's. My righteousness draws near, my salvation has gone out, and my arms will judge the people. The coastlands hope for me, and for my arm they wait. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look to the earth beneath. 
For the heavens vanish like smoke, the earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings. For the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. Awake, awake! Put on your strength, O arm of Yahweh. Awake, as in the days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? And the ransom of Yahweh shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. I, I am he who comforts you, Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies, of the son of man who is made like grass, and have forgotten Yahweh your maker who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth, and you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor when he sets himself to destroy? And where is the wrath of the oppressor? He who is bowed down shall speedily be released. He shall not die and go down to the pit, neither shall his bread be lacking. I am Yahweh, your God, who sits up in the, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. Yahweh of hosts is his name. And I have put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand, establishing the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth and saying to Zion, you are my people. The grass withers and the flower falls. You may be seated. So these, this passage that we have the, before us and the, the remainder of it for next week are some of the most encouraging words we've heard yet in Isaiah. They just continue to escalate and to crescendo with the glory of God and his care for the people. And it will create such a crescendo by the time we get to the end of it next week that we will be shocked to actually hear how the servant will accomplish this because he must suffer and die so that we may have this joy. Well, I've outlined the whole section together, so we'll cover part of it this week and part of it next week. Between Isaiah 51.1 and 52.12, we witness six commands and an interlude demonstrating God's gracious provision of salvation to the world through his servant. Six commands and an interlude demonstrating God's gracious provision of salvation to the world through his servant. Now here are the questions before us as we jump in here. The command is to listen and to be awake. So my question to you from the very beginning is, are you one who is capable of listening? I'm not just talking about hearing the words. I'm talking about spiritual understanding. Are you capable? Are you able to listen? Secondly, do you have a desire to listen? Our text will progress in that direction, so you need to be prepared. Are you able and do you have a desire? 
And third, does your desire lead to that, what, that which you hear changing your life, bearing fruit? Are you able? Or do you des- are you able? Do you desire? And does it bear fruit? Isaiah, speaking for Yahweh, wants us to answer those questions today. So the first command, listen, my people, I will comfort you. Look at chapter 51, beginning right at the beginning. Listen to me. This listen here in 51.1 as well as 51.7 is that Hebrew word for shema that every Hebrew would hear automatically. Hear, O Israel. Hear, your, hear O Israel. Yahweh. Yahweh is one. And that, w- that was called in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, the Shema, it's repeated all the time, and every Jew would understand that when that word comes, their ears should be perking up. And we know that as well. We draw our attention to any time the Bible commands us to listen. And here is one of several today. Listen to me. Now, who is me? We have to ask this question because in this section of Isaiah, we have multiple characters, right? We have the people, we have lost people, we have idolaters, we have Isaiah himself, we have Yahweh, and we have his servant. And, yeah, and, and, and the, the, the grammar shifts around where we're not told, now Yahweh is speaking. We don't have the, the, the Isaiah 40 to 55 for dummies in front of us, right? We are looking and seeing from the context who is speaking. Now, I want to tell you how this is tied. Look back at the last chapter, verses 10 and 11. This is where we came from last time. Israel is brought as being this completely disobedient and sinful servant, and yet God is going to save them in spite of themselves. And this is the challenge at the end of chapter 50. Verse 10, who among you fears the Yahweh and obeys the voice of his servant? Now there's the question, who fears Yahweh and obeys his voice? Now those are two separate things, but in the parallelism, they're the same thing. If you are fearing Yahweh, you are obeying his voice. Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of Yahweh and rely on his God. Even though for the, eight, the, the sixth century people, they're in, in captivity in Babylon. They're walking in spiritual darkness, they feel, in physical darkness. They're to trust in the Lord because the Lord has not changed. So even though they're walking in that darkness, they're to trust in him and rely on him. And that's the call to all of us. It's the call that Luke gave this morning in so many different situations that seem hopeless when we're discipling other people that we are calling people to believe on God and to trust in God, even in the midst of their trials. And it's all through scriptures and it is here as well. So it is the call. If you are Yahweh's, you are listening and you are hearing, even though that you don't know where you're going, you're trusting in him. But there is another group in verse 11. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled, that you have from my hand, this you have from my hand, you shall lie down in torment. You want to have your own wisdom, kindle your own fire? You don't, you're, you don't like the darkness, so you're going to light your own fire, your own wisdom, your own knowledge, and you're going to do things by your own way? Well, it will lead to destruction for you, and it leads to destruction from my hand. So these are the two groups of people that are being laid out, and that's all the way through Scripture, isn't it? You're either for God, with him, or against him. You are either in his son or an enemy of his son. And it is no different here in Isaiah. So that's ringing in our ears from chapter 51. And now we have this call. Who are to listen? 
And this is, this is Yahweh. And I will tell you, all the way through this passage, Yahweh and the servant, it's, it's as if we're hearing both of them speak at the same time. Many things, some of the language that is used is used of the servant earlier on in servant songs. And some of the language is the things that the servant has already told us to do from his own mouth. And so it's Yahweh and the servant in their ministry together speaking to us. And I don't even want to parse the difference. It's clear where God is speaking and where we need to listen. So listen, verse 1, to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek Yahweh. Now don't skip over those verses. Is that you? Is that you? Is, Is that where you are? Is your life marked by pursuing righteousness and seeking Yahweh, seeking God, seeking Christ? That's the mark of a believer. But if we pass over that and just assume it's us, we're going to listen to the rest of this and we're not even going to have our own heart and mind open to the words of the one to whom we're commanded to listen. Because these are powerful words, pursuing righteousness and seeking the Lord. Proverbs 21, 21, whoever pursues righteousness and kindness will find life, righteousness and honor. So this is, this is a pursuit, and it's active. The grammar here is active. It's a continual, passionate, ongoing pursuit of what? Of righteousness. Now, this is going to be important in our text, and it's been important in Isaiah, that when we're speaking of righteousness, most of the time we're speaking about the character of God and the character of all of his acts and what he has done. So when we're pursuing righteousness, it's not that, just we're, that we're just pursuing good things. It's that we're pursuing God. We're pursuing Christ. We're pursuing his character because that everything he does is righteous. When we talk about his justice, it is a world that is lined out according to the character of God. So righteousness and justice are important. Are we pursuing that? When we do, we find life, righteousness, and honor. Proverbs eleven nineteen: Whoever is steadfast in righteousness will live, but he who pursues evil will die. You notice there's no pursue righteousness and live, be neutral and kind of put everything off and it'll be okay, or pursue evil and die. It's either or. Where are you? Are you pursuing righteousness or are you pursuing evil? Are you pursuing the things that match with God's character? Or as Colossians say, seeking the things that are above where Christ is. Is that your life? Or are you pursuing the world and all of its pursuits and you don't even have the knowledge of when evil overtakes you? Proverbs 15, 9, the way of the wicked is an abomination to Yahweh, but he loves him who pursues righteousness. Why? Because we're pursuing him. We're pursuing him in everything that he does and that he wants and that he calls good. Matthew 5, 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what? For righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. The ways of the world are not going to satisfy us. The sin that you want to pursue is not going to satisfy you. It's a siren call. You think for a moment it will satisfy you and you pursue it and then you know, you know it won't because you've been there before. You want to be satisfied? Seek after righteousness and you will be blessed. Well, we also have the idea of seeking. Now, they're in parallel here, who pursue righteousness, who seek the Lord. So pursuing righteousness is tantamount to seeking the Lord. They're they're both the same thing, seeking Yahweh. If you're pursuing Yahweh, you are pursuing him in all of his character. Deuteronomy 4.29 
speaking of those who are exiled, uh, exiled from their land. But from there, the exile, you will seek Yahweh, your God, and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. That is the promise. It is the promise to those in exile, and it's still the promise to us. God will be found by those who honestly, spiritually seek him. Proverbs 110 verse 4. No, 105 verse 4. Seek Yahweh and his strength. Seek his presence continually. Matthew 6.33, don't worry about what you will eat, drink, or wear, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Romans 3.11 says, no one understands, no one seeks for God, but there is glorious news on top of that, as Paul quotes from Isaiah 65.1, when he says, I have been found by those who did not seek me, and I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. Do you see the sovereign hand of God in this? God reveals himself to those he chooses, whether they've sought or not, and he reveals himself to those who have not even sought after him, and he grants them blessing when he chooses, and at the same time, he's commanding us all to constantly seek after him. Colossians 3.1, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Hebrews 11.6, without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. But there's also a bad seeking in scripture, isn't there? Jews demand a sign. They're seeking a sign in 1 Corinthians 1.22. And non-elect Israel failed to obtain what they sought because, quote, their hearts were hardened in Romans 11.7. And in Philippian, Paul speaks of those who seek after their own interests rather than Jesus Christ, Philippians 2.21. Now, I bring all those things to you to say, these are major issues, are they not? Pursuing righteousness, seeking Christ are the marks of believer. Not believers. Not doing that gives evidence that we are not. So I want this to hit hard. And you say, man, you're going to preach 10 minutes on every verse? No. But they're not going to mean a thing to you if you don't ask the Lord for clarity on your own heart. Because you will dismiss them like you're dismissing everything else that would lead you to holiness. So check your heart. Is this you? Because it's going to increase. Our text increased. Here it is those who pursue righteousness and seek Yahweh. We'll look back at, at verse one. The call then from God, he says, listen to me, all you who pursue righteousness and who seek Yahweh, look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug, look to Abraham your father and to Sarah who bore you. And see how those are in parallelism. So when he says, look to the rock from which you were hewn, that's Abraham, your father. The quarry from which you were dug, that is Sarah who bore you. And you're thinking, well, wait a minute. I thought God was the rock. That's what the psalmist says all the time. You are my rock and you put my feet on solid ground. But now God is saying, look to the rock of Abraham and Sarah. Why is he doing that? Because he wants them to see his own work in the life of his people. So he takes them back to the beginning. And he gives a reason here, right? Look to Abraham and Sarah. And you say, well, what reason? Well, what does the text say? For, for he was but one when I called him that I might bless him and multiply him. 
So we're being taken back to the covenant promises of Abraham. Abraham called, he's called to go, and God says, I will, I will make you a great nation. Your descendants will, will be more than the, than the sand on the seashore and the skies and the stars in the sky. There will be kings that come from you. And God says, I will do that. I will make your name great. Remember, at the Tower of Babel, what happened? They wanted to make their own name great. And God says, I will make your name great. So these are the promises to Abraham that starts out the Jews. They start out with these kinds of promises where God says, I will do this in you. You will be my people and I will be your God is carried through. Now we know that those promises are seen in their fulfillment in the one true seed, Galatians 3 says, who is Jesus himself. And that if we are in Christ, we are inheritors of all the promises that are to Abraham. So we are included in this text. We are looking to Abraham, not for Abraham and Sarah, but for the God of Abraham and Sarah who made promises that were fulfilled in Christ. So we are seeing already the picture of Christ and the servant come to the forefront in these texts. But verse 3 starts with another 4, doesn't it? For Yahweh comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of Yahweh. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the voice of song. Now that sounds like what the exiles came back to when they were freed to go back home, right? No, it doesn't, does it? They were happy to go home. They were happy to start building again, but this isn't what they were experiencing yet. We already sense that we're talking about something more grand and more glorious. We're talking about a restored Eden. We're talking about that time when Christ will come again and inaugurate the new heavens and new earth. We're talking about the ultimate fulfillment when the seed of Abraham has come and he has done his work and he will come again to redeem fully all of those who are in him and to judge the world for its wickedness. So our eyes are lifted up with that multiple fulfillment that we've seen in Isaiah. We are lifted up to the time it will be the ultimate fulfillment in the new heavens and new earth. But we also know that we taste that every day, do we not? So this is not only for them, but that is for us as well. So they're to look to Abraham and Sarah because of what God in their, did in their life. They were, he was but one when I called him. And I, I, I blessed him and multiplied him. Why? Because I comfort my people. He comforts his people not only in the blessing, the physical blessings of Israel, but in all the spiritual blessings pulled, brought into us through Christ, the promised seed. <clears throat> and this is a picture of that restored wilderness. And we've seen these kinds of ideas over and over in Isaiah where things that are, are desolate are made live and, people that, and things that are live and, and green and growing are made desolate to represent judgment. And this is that ultimate fulfillment of all of this. So he comforts his people by reminding them of the promises to Abraham that will lead toward a renewed Eden and everything being perfect and full of joy and gladness and thanksgiving giving and his people with a voice of song. So listen, my people, I will comfort you. I will bless you like Abraham. I will restore you like Eden. But the second promise, the second command, and these are all promises as well, listen to my people, listen, my people, I will save. Look at verse four. Here we have that repetition again, give attention to me, my people, and give ear to my to me, my nation, 
So he's speaking of his people and his nation, but we're going to see that his people and his nation are in the process of being expanded. Now, we've seen that over and over in Isaiah, haven't we? It's not, it's not new to us. We know that, the, that when God acts, he's acting in a way to have his salvation broadcast to the coastlands, to have everyone, every people and nation and tribe and tongue be able to hear of his salvation and respond to that. And this section brings us into that same thought. Look at the second half of verse four. For a law will go out from me. Now remember, when we see law in Isaiah, Torah, we're we're oftentimes talking about the teaching, the teaching that goes forward, what God has to say to the world. A law will go out from me and I will set my justice for a light to the people's. Now here's where our metaphors start getting a little bit mixed to show us how glorious he's, the glorious promise he's making. Who has been the light in this section so far in, from, from section 40, from chapter 40? The light has been the servant, 42.6, 49.6. The servant has been the light to the Gentiles. The servant has been that. So when, when God is saying here, a teaching will go out from me and I will set my justice for a light for the peoples. What was the purpose of the servant coming in chapter 42 and in chapter 49? To bring justice, right? That was the promise. He would come and he would be the one who would judge rightly and he would bring justice. Why? Because he was the righteousness of the one who sent him. So when these words are mixed together here, I will set my justice for a light for the peoples, that's a way of saying, listen, my teaching is going to go out and my servant is going to go out to be a light for the peoples. Keep your finger in 51 and turn back to chapter two. Chapter two of Isaiah. Let's remind ourselves that we've been learning about these ideas from the very beginning. Chapter 2, the word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days, and we're in the latter days, that the mountain of the house of Yahweh shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come. Let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law, the teaching, and a word, and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples and they shall beat their swords into plowshare and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So even in chapter two, we're given the promise that the word of the Lord would go out and the nations would come seeking to hear what Yahweh had to say and wanting to be obedient toward it. Remember, listening If you are truly listening, you are obeying. If you're not, you're not completely listening. You've heard, but it hasn't gotten to your heart. And so that's what's being called back in Isaiah 51. Turn back there if you're not there. My teaching will go out for me 
and I will set my justice for a light to the people. So speaking, giving us, giving us another nod toward what we're going to see in chapter 52, uh, 12 with the, uh, 13 with the servant coming. Verse five, my righteousness draws near, my salvation has gone out, and my arms will judge the peoples. Now that's just a full statement of the gospel. When, the righteous, when Yahweh says his righteousness has, draws near, what he's saying is he is drawing near. He's drawing near. And how does he draw near? His salvation has gone out. His salvation is a mark of and an, and an example of the character of his righteousness. You see, because he can't grant salvation unless he is righteous, can he? He can't just say, oh, today's the Kmart special, now the blue light special, now you get saved today, it doesn't make any difference. Where there's sin, there has to be judgment. And so he has set forth and he's saying, this is my righteousness going forth. I am offering salvation. And as we'll see as it develops, it's again to all the nations, to the coastlands, to the islands. I'm offering that. And he has a plan to accomplish it. And all of this section is leading us to Isaiah 53, where we find that plan enacted and what it will cost his servant. My righteousness draws near, my salvation has gone out, and my arms, notice the plural, will judge the people. I think it's a plural to show us, like a plural, grammarians call it a plural of majesty, to, to draw emphasis to this, to plural arms, his power, his power to judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me, and for my arm they wait. Now, isn't that marvelous? The coastlands, remember, that's, that's to the ends of the earth in, Isaiah, in, in, in the Isaiahic language, to the ends of the earth, to all the nations, and they're waiting. You remember what we learned about waiting already? Those who wait on the Lord. Waiting on the Lord is the requirement for our salvation. That we wait on the Lord and we'll be born up as eagles under eagles' wings. And so even the nations are doing this. The nations are coming and waiting for the arm. And for my arm they wait. Now what is that saying? That's telling us they're waiting for the servant. When we look in this, this is what it's preparing us for, was Isaiah 53.1, where the arm is the servant and his coming. So when God speaks of his power, when God speaks of his ability to give this salvation because of the character of his righteousness, he's not just claiming it for himself, he's demonstrating it through his servant, and the nations wait for it. My salvation reaches to the ends of the earth, but my salvation is forever as well. Look at verse 6. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath, for the heavens vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. Or maybe your version says like gnats or like flies. That's the literal grammar of it, but but it's meaning in the same way. He's not trying to draw attention to the fact that the earth is eventually going to wear out. I mean, whatever your theology is of what the new heavens and new earth will be, what he's trying to draw your attention to is that these things are transient. But yet, the salvation of the Lord, he says it right here, but my salvation will be forever and my righteousness will never be dismayed. It will never be overcome. It will never be reviled So when his salvation goes out, that's his righteousness going forth. It's on display for all the world to see. Will they listen or will they not? Will you listen or will you not? Because right now, so far, all we've been doing is talking to people who are seeking and pursuing, right? Are you pursuing? 
Are you seeking? Are you pursuing righteousness? Are you seeking Yahweh? Are you seeking Jesus? Because he has sent his salvation out that demonstrates his righteousness and it is eternal. It is forever. There's no, there's no um, uh, spoiling date, expiration date on this. The world will come from what it is now to something else in the new heavens and the new earth. And you can look around and see the majesty of his creation, but it will eventually fold up like a tent. You need to be in connection with the one who has sent his servant. You need to be in connection with the servant. You need to be in connection with the one who was promised seed of Abraham. That allows you to be the ones who truly pursue and truly seek. But if you are truly pursuing and truly seeking, which means, this is simple, right? This, this is not something that takes rocket science or a theology degree to understand. If you are pursuing and seeking righteousness and the Lord, how do you do that? You're in his word because his word is how he speaks. He doesn't speak outside of his word. He speaks from his word to his people. So if that's where you want to be, that's the way you, that's the way you make that measurement. But he's going to increase the stakes for us. You can't just be on a life of saying, well, I'm pursuing and seeking. You ever known one who is always seeking but never coming to the knowledge of the truth? We don't want to be those people Listen, my people, I will comfort you. Listen, my people, I will save. And the third command to listen, listen, my people, don't fear men. Look at verse 51, or chapter 51, verse seven. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Do you see the increase? Do you feel the pressure here? It's not just the seeking of it, thinking, oh, I think that would be nice, but I'm never, going to, I'm never going to grow in my understanding of it, let alone bow to it. Now we've increased to those in verse seven who know righteousness. They understand it and whose heart and, and the law is in their heart. The word of God is in their heart. Psalm 37, 30 and 31 says this. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. Do you see what it means when the law of God is in your heart? It is active. It's living and active. So your steps do not slip. You're not falling into sin as much as you used to do before because you were learning and doing the word of God. Psalm 40, verse 8, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. So we're not just seeking it anymore. We're not just pursuing it. We have obtained, we have begun to obtain it, and now it is in our heart. So we're delighting to do his will. We're delighting to do what we find in the word. Psalm 119, 9 through 11, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. Do you see the increase here? This is the word in our heart and an understanding of the righteousness that we seek. And he's still speaking. He's saying, if you're seeking this, this is what happens when you start to grow in it. Look at verse 7. Because you know righteousness and my teaching is in your heart. But also, look at verse 8. Because men are temporary, but my righteousness and salvation are forever. So follow the flow here. His righteousness will never be dismayed in verse 6. 
The third command, the third Shema, listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law, there's two ways of saying the same thing, fear not the reproach of men, nor be dismayed at their revilings. For the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool, but my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. Another statement that is the same. This time it's not, it's not the heavens and the earth that are put before us and saying they will be rolled up like a scroll, but it is, it is the, the men themselves that they're fearing. They will, they, will be, they will be eaten like a moth eats a garment, or a worm eats, or the worm will eat them like wool. So the promise is these things, these men, these ones that you're fearful of, you should not be dismayed by them because my righteousness will never be dismayed. You see the connection here. When we're the ones who seek and then start to understand the righteousness of God as brought out through his salvation and all its benefits and all the ways he speaks through the word, we, with our eyes focused on God, will never let men cause us any dismay at all. We will not let the voices of the world overcome us because we're listening to our God. We will not let the messages of the world overcome us because we are focused on and listening to our God who speaks, speaks to us through his word. Well, there is fruit in the lives of those people who listen. In verse 9, we have the first of three awake passages. And we see, awake, Yahweh, awake and exercise your might. The focus changes here with it's Isaiah speaking for the people or the people themselves speaking, asking Yahweh to put on his strength, put on his arm, his power of Yahweh. Awake as in, this is verse 9, awake as in the days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Now, why are we talking about Rahab and a dragon all of a sudden? We've seen this before already in Isaiah. Rahab is a way of talking about Egypt. Rahab is, a, is another name for Egypt. But I think it goes deeper than that here. <clears throat> Rahab is also this mythical... Um, Um, ancient Near Eastern sea monster that is representative of the sea and chaos. In the mindset of those people in the ancient Near East, the sea was the untamable place of chaos. No man could overcome it. There was a fear of the sea. That's why sailors who would go out on the sea were so vaunted and they were lifted up because of their bravery. So this idea that there is this there is this pagan view of the sea being chaos and the gods that control it the bible takes head on in job and in psalm 98 it says that god crushes rahab to pieces it is our god who is strong if those other gods existed he would crush them anyway so i think both of those are here but he wants us to turn our minds toward egypt constant theme. Remember the, this new exodus that we see all through Isaiah. So the people are calling on God. You, you see what's happened here? The people now are calling on God. God has reminded them who he is and who they are and how he works to comfort his people through salvation. And now that prompts them to pray prayers of faith. Well, if that's all true, then we need to be praying to this God. This God is speaking to us with comfort. We need to pray to him and listen to the prayer they give. 
They call for him to put on strength and his arm, which here is maybe an understanding that it's the servant, but probably just his power. Awake is in the days of old, and then takes everybody's mind back to the day that the, the people of God were delivered from Egyptian captivity. Was it not you, verse 10, who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea... A, made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over. Clear picture of the Exodus, remembering remembering what God has done in the past. He has been faithful to bring comfort to his people through his own power and overcome all the kings and all the gods of every other nation. So remember, and they're calling God to act in the same way. They're, they're strengthening their own faith reminding them of how God has acted, but they're also calling him to act in the same way. And they're knowing that if he did it before, he'll do it again. And this is what it will look like in verse 11. And the ransom of, the, of Yahweh shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. You hear that revelation language? No more sorrow, no more death, dying, crying, sorrow. Our eyes are set toward that final coming of Christ. We taste the benefits of it now, we who seek and pursue. We who are not only seeking and pursuing, but are growing in our knowledge of righteousness in, whose, in whose, uh, his law in our heart. The, the fact that we are constantly going to his word and seeking out what he would have us understand about us and about him, that's the road to sanctification. And when we do that, we realize that we are not to be dismayed by anyone else and that we are to be trusting in him. So we pray to him. If, if you get to the end of all this and you don't open your heart and mind to prayer, you've missed the point. Your sustenance, your de- everything that you depend on, everything that you need comes from God. So why do you not converse with him about that? It, it, it's a constant call for us to be in conversation with our Lord because he opens up that conversation possibility through his son. He commands it of us, but it's also a sweet possession of the people of God, is it not? To be able to go to God and say, act according to your character. Act according to your word. You, vengeance is not mine, it is yours. You do as you see fit. And it strengthens us not to be, ever be dismayed by the thoughts of men. So the awake from his people, save us as you did our forefathers from Egypt and we will joyfully praise you. Well then there's an interlude in verse 12. And I went ahead and went through the, uh, and taking us through the first awake and the interlude, because the next wake that starts in 17, and then the, the third awake passage, it starts in chapter 52, shift our focus back to God completely in a way that is overwhelmingly uh, joyful and satisfying for us. So this first passage is setting us up for what we have starting in 17, which leads us to chapter 52, 12, and 13. In verse 13, look at this interlude. They've just prayed. What do you expect when the people of God pray to God? He answers, right? He answers. You, you may not hear his voice in, in, in the room. It may be an answer that comes later, but he is hearing and he is answering. And that's what happens here. I, I am he who comforts you. Bring us back to the same thoughts that he started the chapter with. I comfort you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies? 
So he's told them not to be dismayed, but now there's a reason that they're dismayed. Who are you that you are afraid of a man who dies? Remember, we just learned that the, that the moths will eat them. They're going to meet their demise, but the salvation and righteousness of the Lord is forever. Of the Son of Man who is made like grass. Now here's the reason. Underline this. And have forgotten the Lord your maker. Forgotten Yahweh your maker. So they have forgotten and you have forgotten. Isn't this the way it goes? When the world around us becomes overwhelming to us, the first thing we want to do is retreat into our own self. We want to push the people who love us away. Why? Because they might challenge us. They might remind us that our faith is in the Lord. They might remind us that that we can endure anything because he sustains us. And we really have a pity party going right now that we want to have. Or maybe it's just we can't even see. And we don't want anybody else to come beside us who can grab along and they do see and take us with us. We're just afraid of those kinds of things. We've forgotten God and we get caught up in ourselves. That's why everything that Luke is teaching you on Sunday morning is so important because he is teaching you how to go after people who are going after sin because they've forgotten God thinking that it will satisfy them and teaching us how to use the word of God, not our own wisdom, not lighting our own fires and, and, and living by our own light, but the word of God. This is the life of a believer. But when we don't do that, when we forget God, we start to fear men. We start, to, we start to turn around in the elevator when everybody else does, if we forget God. And why is it important? This is the one who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. And the one who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth, you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor who sets him up to himself up to destroy? Where is the wrath of the oppressor? God says, I'm in charge of this. Even if there is an oppressor, oppressor, I am in charge of that for you. I am doing it for your own good to draw you closer to me. So trust in me. He's challenging them. But look at the good news. He who is, verse 14, he who is bowed down shall speedily be released and he shall not die and go down to the pit. Neither shall his bread be lacking. So even though you are being oppressed, you were bowed down. You were bowed down by the, the weight of your, the, the pressures over you. You shall speedily be released. That's that language of salvation. You will not go, die and go down to the pit. You will not meet your demise here. And you will not even have your bread lacking. I am Yahweh your God who stirs up the sea so that the, its waves roar. Yahweh of hosts is his name. You see how it shifts back and forth? I am your God. Yahweh of hosts is his name. It's, it's as if the servant is speaking and Yahweh is speaking, giving encouragement. And if, if God is the one who claims to stir up the sea, he is the one who is master over all the chaos in the world so he says this interlude he brings comfort that he will deliver you deliver his people even though they have forgotten him and are afraid of these oppressors verse 16 and I have put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand establishing the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth and saying to Zion, you are my people. Now that's the same language he used of his servant, isn't it? He put the words, his own words in his servant's mouth so that he would be the one who speaks righteousness and justice. And now he's saying this of his people, you are my God and you are my people. 
eternal promise of the Old Testament scriptures. God has provided a way for his people to be with him even though they're sinful. So in this passage, we, we are seeing so clearly God's call to his people to trust him for who he is, to trust him because of what he has done, and to call them to grow in their understanding of what he is doing, his righteousness worked out in salvation. And all along, the servant is, is behind every scene that we have, from the promises to Abraham, from the deliverance from, from Egypt and the, the new deliverance, the, the new exodus and deliverance that, that this servant will come and give us from our sin. Because remember, there is no peace for the wicked. They can be delivered from their exile, but if their sin is still there, they still have this major problem. You and I can experience blessings, but if our sin is still separating us from God, then our eternal salvation is in jeopardy. If our sin still separates us and we are not part of Christ, then what good does it do to live a blessed life in this world? And that's Isaiah's constant message to us. So it is the one who comes. It is the promised seed of Abraham. It is the one whose God has put the words in his mouth and given him the mission to carry out justice. The one who will eventually come and die on a cross, which we'll learn so much more about in the fourth servant song. After a life lived in in the holiness that God has talked about, demonstrating his righteousness and his salvation and dying on a cross and being raised again and seated at the right hand of the Father so that that is established eternally as Isaiah promises. The question for you is, are you hearing? Are you in a salvific state? Have you turned from your sin and trusted in Christ so that you are hearing him? Not just reading his words. Lost people read his words. Some of, the, some of the people who are the most ardent enemies of Christian know the book of, know the Bible better than a lot of Christians do. Do you know his word? Are you hearing? Do you understand the parables, as Jesus would say? Do you understand what he's saying spiritually? And if you are, are you growing in that? Are you growing in your knowledge of his holiness and his righteousness? Are you growing in the benefits of his salvation? Are you growing in Christ's likeness? Are you becoming conformed in, in, to the image and likeness of Christ? And if you aren't, then you're bearing the fruit that is intended to bear and you have that strong um, affirmation that God is working in you. So the challenge is, if you don't know Christ this morning, you need to repent of your sin and turn to him so that all this speaking becomes real to you. But if you're caught up in the world in such a way that it's just words and you come here and you listen and you might even have scripture memorized, you might even have all the right answers to all of Luke's hard questions You might have all of that and still not know him because it's an intellectual pursuit and not a heart pursuit. Storing his word in your heart so that you might not sin against him. That's what Isaiah is preparing us for and it's the call to us today. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for your blessings to us, for the challenge of your word, for the depth of your word and the constant ability of your spirit to reveal more clearly your character to us, your call to us, and our mission. So we pray, Father, that we are those people who are listening, that we're not overcome by the words of the world or the thinking of the world or being conformed into that image, but we are being transformed, being made more like your son because we listen to you through your word. And not only listen just to hear the words, but we listen to obey the mark of a believer that we would be obedient 
to the word, that we would show our love for Christ and that we are loved by him, by our obedience. So Father, strengthen us in these areas. Continue to prepare us for this coming of, in Isaiah, the coming of the suffering servant in the fourth servant song. Help us to see clearly all he brings about before we even understand his suffering. We are thankful for this in Jesus' name. Amen.